right, as you come back in and grab a seat, a couple of announcements I missed. There is youth tonight. Youth is launching tonight. Uh, I think it's wrong in the bulletin as well. So <laughs> I was out of town this week. I don't know. Um, there is youth tonight, though. So uh, if you want to talk to Tyler, uh, need details on that. That's going to be launching uh, tonight. All right. After Jesus died on the cross for the sin of the world, after Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death, he stood in front of his disciples, and he said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for this calling, this great commission that you have invited us into this story. And today as we start to talk about what it looks like to be your follower, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would limit our distractions right now. That you uh, would just get a hold of our heart. And we want to be open to uh, just what you're doing in our lives and in the world around us. So we give you this time. Amen. All right. Yasha Heifetz is considered to be uh, one of the, the greatest violinists of the 20th century. This virtuoso uh, was born in uh, what is now Lithuania. Um, he started playing the violin when he was two years old. Think about that. I have a three-year-old daughter. Um, she's crazy, and it's so much fun. Uh, I can't imagine her uh, playing the violin. He started at two years old. Uh, by the time he was five, he made his first public appearance, a public concert, played as a five-year-old in front of people. By the age of 10, he was being taught, um, identified as a sensation, being taught by some of the most renowned violinists around Europe. He did an outdoor uh, concert in Odessa in front of 8,000 people at the age of 10. After he played, uh, the police had to escort him out because crowds were rushing him. Uh, he uh, appeared in, in Berlin and got involved in the music scene around 1912. Berlin, at the time, kind of considered uh, you know, the, the hub of musical genius. Uh, came over to the United States, his family moved over to the United States, played at Carnegie Hall. Um, one of his, his idols, uh, Fritz Chrysler, um, heard him play, and after he heard him play, uh, he, he turned around to a room full of musicians and said, we might as well take our fiddles and break them across our knees, after he heard this young uh, child play uh, violin. Um, goes on to have this uh, just a, amazing, amazing career um, as a violinist. Uh, during World War II, would play all sorts of uh, shows, raising funds for the troops. Um, very distinguished uh, uh, performance career. Um, I, I, kind of in the, in the prime of his touring and, and career, um, he, he ended up having a career change. And he went from just performing um, to going into teaching. And he was hired uh, by UCLA um, as the professor of music for the, the entire uh, university. And he started to teach college students to play the violin. Uh, spent the rest of his life uh, still touring and performing, but he was a professor. He was a teacher. Um, also taught at USC. 
And when, when people started to ask him, why in the world you who, who are uh, the greatest of your craft um, could do anything you want, would go into, into teaching where you're spending all of your time with a bunch of college students. And uh, what, you know, what, what prompted you to do that? And his response was this. Herfitz replied, violin playing is a perishable art. It must be passed on as a personal skill. Otherwise, it's lost. Violin playing is a perishable art, and it must be passed on as a personal skill. Otherwise, it's lost. This virtuoso, this sensation, loved his craft, was genius at his craft, but wanted that to continue with the next generation. And he spends his life pouring into young musicians, teaching him all of the things that he had learned and gathered in his early life over in Europe, being taught by the greatest, brings it over here and then starts to invest in other people. I think that's an important example of when you have a gift, when you've been given uh, something that uh, is a blessing to other people to say, um, I, I want to pass this on. And I know that in order for me to pass this on in a way that sticks, that people really start to understand what it means to be great in, in this art, I have to spend time with them. There's a mentoring that happens here, this passing of this craft uh, to another person. And when we start talking about this idea of discipleship, we start talking about this idea of, of what Jesus calls us to in the, in the Great Commission, uh, there, there's, there's something very intentional that it requires from us to be a disciple. This series we're talking about, to be a, a disciple of Jesus, that's an identity that we have. We are disciples. But there's also this calling to disciple other people, the things that we have learned uh, from our Savior, the, 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 what he has done on this earth and what he calls us to requires action from us. There's an identity and a calling uh, to be a disciple. And as Jesus stands up uh, after, after the resurrection, he looks at his disciples and he says, here's what you are to do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I heard like different churches have different mission statements, different visions. I, th- I think the best vision statement for any church is uh, to be a disciple who makes disciples, who makes disciples, who makes disciples. It doesn't, it's not super catchy or fun, um, but we are called to this life of discipleship. So what is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? Uh, disciple, if we, we kind of want to start to define it, the Greek word is methetis. Uh, and it means kind of a student or a learner, but it's, it's more than just a student or a learner. A disciple, this Methodist, uh, in its original context, meant someone who follows, a follower. And the followers of Jesus were called disciples. Uh, this, this word comes up 270 times in the New Testament. And long before followers of Jesus were called Christians, they were called his disciples, his followers. In fact, this name Christian doesn't come along until I think in, in Acts chapter 11. Uh, there's a story of, of uh, the disciples at Antioch and they're called Christians. And they're called Christians by people from outside of the church. And they're, they're given this title Christians. And it's actually kind of a derogatory word when it's first used to be called a Christian. It's those outside the church that are calling them uh, Christians. And we, we know that it's kind of a derogatory term when it's kind of being used because Peter, 
And 1 Peter writes a letter, and he says these words. He says, if you suffer for being a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, that you bear that name. Don't be ashamed that you're being called this thing, but praise God. And so, like, yeah, this, this idea of Christian, when we first comes into the story, it's actually kind of a derogatory uh, name. It, it, but Christian's a good name. Christian means belonging to Christ. And that's what it, like, as followers of Jesus, that, that's who we are. We belong to Jesus. We belong to Christ. Um, but belonging is, is something that, that is, we, we belong to something. It could be kind of passive, and all of that's good. But then there's also an action that is required. We belong to Christ in the story of the gospel, and yet we also are becoming more like Jesus. This discipleship requires an action. And here's how we kind of know that discipleship uh, isn't just a passive identity. It requires action. Brief history of, of disciples in the first century. So Jesus is uh, born, kind of grows up, uh, we know born in Bethlehem, grows up in this uh, place called Galilee. And uh, what scholars say is that Galilee is actually uh, full of just uh, some of the most religious Jews in the Mediterranean world. We always think of like Jerusalem as like this hub. Uh, but Galilee is actually these very devout Jewish people um, who are very zealous and very knowledgeable, and they have this amazing education system. And for them, kind of the knowledge of the Old Testament is so important, understanding their scripture. Um, and, and part of that is, is Galilee is in this place that's kind of in the crossroads of all sorts of different trade routes. And so there's tons of people coming in from all over the world uh, there. Um, and, and they have to kind of know their stuff. And, and there's like the Greeks that are coming in, and there's this Hellenization, this cultural uh, uh, transformation that's happening. And so uh, the people in Galilee have, have this amazing education system that kind of uh, uh, protects what, what their belief, what their, what their faith is. Um, and, and so because of that, they're this very knowledgeable people. And Jesus kind of grows up with this zealous religious culture. And, and the education system would start at the age of five, uh, where, where these children would, would come and, and, and start to learn about the Torah, and they would start to learn about the first five books uh, that, that was for them the law. And at five years old, they would start to memorize it. Again, it makes kind of my parenting skills feel, you know, no violin, no memorization of the Torah. Um, but we're doing okay. So, but they, they would learn uh, at five years old, and from there, uh, they would go, this would be kind of like their elementary school, um, and uh, they would go to kind of the next step, which would be kind of like their secondary school, and they would start to learn uh, beyond the Torah, they would learn uh, the, the wisdom books, they would learn about the prophets, uh, their, their knowledge would expand. Um, and then from there, there was kind of a, a, another type of education that went on. But most people wouldn't advance beyond that secondary education. They would go learn a skill. Um, they would go learn a craft. But the best of the best and the smartest of the people in the secondary education would be allowed to continue their study of the scriptures. And they would have all these rabbis who were teachers that would be teaching them about uh, the scriptures, which are now the Old Testament. Um, and, and what they would find is the best and the brightest students would be allowed to come and study under the rabbis. And so there was almost like this you know, college application process where you would you know, fill out this form. Or it's probably much different back then. But you, you would hope that you would be allowed to go and study with a rabbi. And, uh, and only the best and brightest of the students were allowed to advance to this level. So there was a, a pretty strong base of education. Um, 
But then, but to get to that next level, you would have to be kind of accepted by a rabbi and become a rabbi's disciple. And so you would, you would if you got to this point, and very few would get to this point, um, there was a name for it called the Talmud. And a group of disciples were called the Talmudim. And, uh, and this group of disciples would, would follow a rabbi, and different rabbis had teachings that they called yokes, kind of like the yoke of an oxen. Uh, at one point, we know that Jesus, this, this great rabbi, said, uh, come to me, all who are weary, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These different rabbis had these different teachings for their Talmudim. So if you get to this point, this is like, you know, maybe grad school, expertise level, really smart people that get accepted kind of into this program. Uh, and, and the idea was that you wouldn't just become a student at this point. Um, it, it, here's kind of like what would happen. A student wants to know what the teacher knows for a grade to complete the class or get a degree. But the Talmud, the Talmudim, this group of disciples, they didn't just want to know what the teacher knew. They wanted to become like the teacher. They wanted to become like Yasha, the, the great violinist. They, there was something there that they, it, they, would, they were so entranced and, and mesmerized by the teaching that their desire was to become like the teacher. To not just understand what the teacher's teaching, but to do what the teacher was doing and eventually kind of become a teacher. Everything in their lifestyle, they would spend time following the rabbi. Uh, they, they, would, they would go everywhere with the rabbi. Uh, they would listen to the rabbi's teaching. They would reflect and process. There was this intimate relationship between the disciples and the rabbi. So if we want to know kind of like what does it mean to be a disciple using these kind of first century words, you might say to become a disciple of Jesus is to become like Jesus. The process of discipleship is becoming Christ-like, becoming like Jesus. And that requires time and intimacy, a relationship where you're listening to Jesus' teachings, you're, you're reading through how Jesus walks on this earth, you're reflecting on what those teachings mean, and it transforms you. And the more you become like Jesus, the more you become like the person that Jesus has created you to be on this earth. Jesus comes as this revelation. This is what God is like. But he also comes as this revelation of this is what it means to be human, and this is how you live life with other humans. We call this the way of Jesus. To be a disciple is to become like Jesus. This week, Marcin had the opportunity uh, to go to San Diego for a World Vision conference, and um, it was great. World Vision you know, paid to have us come out, which was really nice, and uh, we got to hear all these great, amazing speakers like David Kinnaman and Sue Chan uh, Ra and the, the new president of World Vision, and uh, it was a super inspiring time for us that reminds us that we're a part of this kingdom story that's worldwide, and you know, very inspiring time. But probably what was most amazing about this trip was we got to sit in the car together for six hours with no kids and drive. And I used to, like, you know, get me, you know, to San Diego as quickly as I can, you know. And it was like, let's take our time. Let's relax. We can actually have a conversation. And it was amazing just being able to talk, to spend time together. It was like, oh, yeah, there you are. Hello, my name is Jared. Nice to see you again. And, and it was just this time of reconnection 
um, that, that there was enough time to slow down and to, to listen to each other, to speak, to reflect. Um, and, and it was just so great. It was so amazing. To, relationships require time. And I wonder if our relationship with Jesus, when it comes to prioritizing our time, what does that look like? Discipleship requires intentional action. It's not just this passive identity that we have. It's an identity that calls us to a certain kind of life that, that requires great uh, commitment from us to spend time with Jesus, praying, reading, reflecting. Our hope is that these journals would be just a, another tool for you to just write out your prayers, to write out your thoughts. Life with Christ. This is this identity that we have, an intimate relationship with Jesus that requires time and listen, listening and imitating what he does. It's an identity. It's a holy identity to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. But here's the other thing. When we, when we look at kind of this, what discipleship means in the first century, these uh, people that would become disciples of a rabbi, uh, you, you would have to, to hope that the rabbi would, would select you. And so you would go through this process of, of, of allowing the, the rabbi to select you. When Jesus has disciples, he actually seeks the disciples out. And we get this with story after story of the disciples where Jesus, he doesn't just wait for them to come to him and say, can I follow you? He actually seeks them out. He initiates the relationship. And it's with people that you would probably never expect, not like the best of the best, the smartest and the brightest, it's fishermen, tax collectors. It's, it's people that, that aren't in that best of the best category. And Jesus goes to them, and he says, I want you to follow me. I want you to be my disciple. This is the character of this God that we have, this Jesus that we have, is that he, he comes to us. He initiates this relationship and says, I want you to become like me. I want to show you what it means to be human. I want to set you free. I want to give you life that is truly life, life that is eternal. And this calling is for all of us. Jesus initiates this calling, seeks us out, says, come and follow me. There's a holy calling. In fact, I would say, here's the first mark of a disciple, is that it's a holy calling. Disciples receive this holy calling to follow Jesus. Jesus invites us into an intimate relationship with him. He calls the disciples to become like him, but then he also calls the disciples to do the things that he does. And we see that this plan that God is unfolding in the world is that he's always looking for a body, a person, a group of people to do his work through. There's a fascinating story in uh, one of the disciples, his name's Peter, he's one of the fishermen. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, I want to just read through this. And I think what's fascinating is this is a disciple that's trying to do uh, what Jesus has called him to do. And we've heard this story a number of times. It's familiar to, to many of you. Some of you might be the first time you hear, heard it. Uh, but this is, it's, it's a, a miraculous story. But it says in Matthew 14, verse 22, immediately Jesus had the disciples to get into a boat, to go ahead of him to the other side of a lake. And then he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up to a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, uh, he was there alone 
and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land. So it was buffeted by the waves because the wind was great. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. So it says that he's actually like walking on the water. Um, I've heard so many people try to explain what this actually could have been. Um, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe he just walked on the water. I, I just think Jesus was able to do these kind of things. And, and he walks on the water, and they're freaking out. And this is why I think he walked on water, because they are freaking out. They think it's a ghost or a spirit or something. They can't figure out what's going on. They're in this boat in these rough waters, and Jesus comes walking along. They cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And then Peter replies, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter got down from the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand, and he caught him. And he says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? He says, because you're walking on the water. It's crazy. <laughs> then they climbed back into the boat, and the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And I, I love this story, and there's so many truths that you could pull from the story um, about uh, what happens between Peter and Jesus. But I think what's fascinating is that G Peter's trying to do what Jesus is doing. Why? Because when you're a disciple, you want to become like, the, like the, the rabbi. You want to do the things that the rabbi is doing. And there's something about Peter's character that sees Jesus doing something insanely miraculous and amazing. And he goes, if I'm a disciple, I want to do that too. And he goes out to him. And it says, kind of takes his eyes off Jesus. And I think there's a truth in, in there. He takes his eyes off Jesus, starts looking at his surroundings, starts looking at his circumstances, and he starts to sink. Um, but I don't think he ever doubts Jesus in this story. In fact, he cries out, Jesus, save me. His hope is still there, but he starts to sink. His circumstances are overwhelming, takes his eyes off Jesus. I think he doubts that he's able to do the things that Jesus is doing. Jesus is able to walk on water. I can't do this. My circumstances are too great. I think that he doubts himself. I think he cries out to Jesus to save him because he's, his hope is still placed in the right thing. But he no longer thinks he can do what Jesus has called him to do. And I think that is something that we, we suffer from all the time. To be a disciple, to be called by Jesus, is to have a life that is full of purpose, uh, of, of, of mission, of uh, significance, and how often do we get distracted by our circumstances? How often do we just uh, think that this is something for the really spiritual to do? And it causes this doubt that I can't do this, I can't accomplish this, I can't be a part of this. Jesus says, Peter, come to me. You, could, you can do this. Why did you have faith? Why do you have such, such doubt? Doubts that he can do what Jesus has called him to do. And I think that God, he's always looking for a body of people to work through. We know this from the old Exodus story when the, the people of Israel get out of Egypt and they go to Sinai. In Exodus 19, Moses is talking to God and they get this kind of sacred identity and calling where God says to Moses, now if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, 
Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession, and all the whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And these are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. You will be a kingdom of priests, these people who represent me here on earth. First Peter, Peter writing uh, later in life, the same Peter that, that sunk uh, trying to walk on water, is writing to the church and he says, but you are a chosen people, a, holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful life. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Great Protestant Reformation started talking about this idea of the priesthood of all believers. That each one of us as a disciple is called and empowered and given a mission. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit with different gifts. And God is always looking for a person and a group of people to work through. To be a disciple is to be a part of this holy identity and calling where God is saying, your life is worth it. I have redeemed you and I am calling you to a life of purpose and significance. And it always requires action. N.T. Wright, a great New Testament scholar, starts talking about this idea of our relationship with Jesus and how it requires action. Here are some of his words. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama, which has him as the central character. You're not just a spectator. You're actually part of the drama. Our task as image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, spirit-filled Christians following Christ and shaping our world is to announce, to announce redemption to a world that has discovered its fallenness, to announce healing to a world that has discovered its brokenness, to, pro- 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 to proclaim Easy for him to say. To proclaim love and trust to a world that only knows exploitation, fear, and suspicion. Being a disciple is this holy identity, but it's this holy calling that requires our participation. In the next seven weeks, we're going to talk about what that participation looks like. And the first mark of a disciple is this holy calling. Jesus loves you so much he's died for you. He's forgiven you. He's brought redemption to your life. And out of that redemption, he wants your life to have meaning. He wants you to be a part of this story, this this priesthood of all believers, each one of us. And all of our different occupations, we're called to be followers of Jesus. One of the questions you can maybe reflect on this week as we get ready to close, maybe in your journal, is this simple question. When did you first hear Jesus call your name? For some of you, this was a long time ago. But to go back to that point of remembering this holy calling, when I first heard Jesus call to me, when I first heard Jesus say, come follow me, let's spend some time this week reflecting on that original calling. Maybe for some of you, that might be today. You've never heard Jesus call to you. Jesus is calling. He wants this relationship with you. 
And maybe today you need to respond to that calling. Tim's going to come back up and we're going to spend some time just reflecting. We close each week with communion. And communion for us is this sacred act of remembering and proclaiming this story that we're a part of. That God loved the world so much that Jesus came into the world. Jesus showed us what God is like. He showed us what it meant to be human. And he also went to the cross. And he broke his body open. And he poured his blood out. So that we may receive salvation. So that we may be reconciled. And through the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his blood, we experience life eternal. Jesus calls to us to come follow him. We practice open communion today uh, here at Desert City. Follower of Jesus, we invite you to the table. We have two stations set up at each side of the room. Tim's going to take us through a song, and uh, when you're ready to, to move around the room and respond, do so as you like. Then Tim will close us out. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for you desiring relationship with us. So often we're undeserving, we're limited, and we see in your character how you call people like Peter, and you use them, you give their life great meaning. We know that you have plans for us individually, as families, as a community. You allow us to be a part of the story of salvation in this world. Lord, I pray that we'd be in tune to the callings, to the calling you have placed on our lives. That we'd hear your still small voice, the nudgings, the prompting of your spirit in us. We'd be reminded of your love. We are Christians, we belong to you we'd be reminded of with this calling, there's this participation that we're not just passive uh, followers, Lord. You call us to action. Like Yasha, the, the violinist, Lord, we would we'd say, I want to give my life uh, to discipling others, to mentoring others, to pouring into the next generation. We're grateful for relationship, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.